Hello and welcome to CAA Conversations. I'm Rachel Skaggs and I'm here with Jennifer Rice and Amy Whitaker. And we're going to talk today about arts entrepreneurship education. Uh, before we dive into it, I'd like for each of our guests to introduce themselves in a little bit more depth. Maybe also saying, are you an artist entrepreneur as you introduce yourself? I'll go ahead and go. My name is uh, Jennifer Rice, as Rachel said, and I am an assistant professor of arts administration at UNC Greensboro. And I come from a visual arts background, worked in art museums, was an art gallery director for quite a while. And yes, I am also an artist entrepreneur. I've been producing, selling, exhibiting, and teaching through my arts-based business since the early 2000s. Great. Um, I, I love being in conversation with both of you. Uh, I'm Amy Whitaker. I'm an assistant professor at New York University. And yes, I'm also an artist entrepreneur. I, for a while, had an unusual found object career of having an MFA in painting and also an MBA, having started my career in art museums before that. Um, right now, I do research on economically sustainable structures for artists using retained fractional equity in art, uh, looking at NFTs and just generally trying to build systems that support artists um, in the best possible way. I think everyone is an artist entrepreneur. I think artist is a proxy for independent thinking. An entrepreneur is a way of being skeptically engaged with and curious about the structures that we're all inhabiting. And I'm Rachel Skaggs. I'm the Lawrence and Isabel Barnett Assistant Professor of Arts Management at The Ohio State University. Until Amy said that everyone's an artist entrepreneur, I might have said that I'm an academic entrepreneur. Um, I'm not a trained artist. Uh, my background is in sociology. So I'm coming at this field from a perspective of looking at studying workers and artist workers and really my goals are similar to both of you, trying to help artists have sustainable, strong careers. I'm just not also making art as part of my career, but perhaps I can take on that mantle as well. <laughs> so for this conversation, I was hoping that our structure could be talking about pretty practical things about arts entrepreneurship education uh, at the collegiate level. So the practical who, what, when, why, and how of teaching arts entrepreneurship to college students and I'm sure that we'll also have examples from our own practice, our own careers, and outside of the classroom things, as entrepreneurship definitely isn't happening only in the classroom. So I'm hoping this will be a usable guide for CAA members and other teachers who might want to know what is important for students to know, when in the course of study this should be happening for our students, why it's important for students to learn this as part of formal arts education rather than on their own and how to teach it. So examples of what's worked well for us. And of course, I'm sure we have examples of things that have not worked well for us. Okay, so I think we should start with the, the who of arts entrepreneurship education. So we're all engaged in teaching students about arts entrepreneurship, but who are the students who take your classes? Are they all coming from the arts or are you getting a mix of disciplinary perspectives? I wonder, Jennifer, if you can get us started on this. Sure, so my colleague and I, Hannah Graneman, we are in a arts administration program that is housed in the School of Art. So I teach two entrepreneurship classes. One is called Arts Administration and Entrepreneurship, which is sort of like our gateway class into the arts administration program. So I'm getting a lot of people who are thinking about arts administration as a career and a lot of you know, uh, performing arts people, 
and visual arts people. Some people are interested in, in art museums. And in that class, we, we look at arts administration using um, entrepreneurial tools. In the second class that I teach, which is a micro enterprise for creatives, I'm get, getting predominantly visual arts and, and media folks in there at, at this point. So that's what the landscape for me looks like right now. Yeah, so I, similar to Jennifer, I'm teaching in an art department. It's called the Department of Art and Art Professions. So it's studio art as well as art therapy, arts administration, and art education. I also get a lot of students who are in the arts administration program, but because we're in the working studio art building and because of my own background in art, I sometimes get to team teach. So I taught a class last semester called Art Money with a photography professor, Jerry Pryor, where it was a studio art class in administration. And um, I've had three different kinds of students um, kind of like by cohort. Uh, when I first started teaching, I taught entrepreneurship as an art form in a liberal arts college. Then I taught kind of business to designers like animators, product designers, um, and also taught workshops to professional artists. And now I would say I'm teaching in these kind of hybrid master's degree classes. Um, in terms of who my students are, I know both of you know this, and Rachel, you've done such interesting research with the SNAP data, but you know, 84% of our students are white, non-Hispanic. And so I think we're all quite engaged in kind of investigating and trying to change that part of the who's in the classroom. And the sort of cyclicality of needing economic support to study art, to then design systems that better economically support people in the future. Um, so looking at this kind of intersectionality of exclusion and privilege and how that uh, circulates. But what excites me most is the way that arts entrepreneurship allows for a kind of liberal arts engagement with the politics of how art and markets come together. And you know, we can talk about that a little bit more later. So Amy, that definitely connects to the type of work I've been doing with arts entrepreneurship education at Ohio State. Um, so our department's located in the School of Arts and Sciences. So I think that liberal arts core really is a piece of what we're doing. And I think that's reflected in the students who take my class. I'm teaching arts entrepreneurship for the first time this semester at Ohio State. And I'm finding that my students are not just from the arts, but also from uh, communications, journalism, economics, real estate, all of these different degree programs that are inherently entrepreneurial, but that are also not providing these skills for students. But also this, this course that I'm teaching was supported by an equity focused pedagogy grant. So it's really fabulous that they're letting me at least try out some equity focused strategies for teaching arts entrepreneurship. And I think that having this kind of backing and thought going into the development of the class hopefully is reflected in the types of students who are taking my class and hopefully addressing some of those inequities that Amy brought out that, that we should, should be focused on because the SNAP data does reflect, and I think that we're all um, aware of this anecdotally in our classes, that our classrooms don't always reflect the people who our communities are made up of. We should also speak from a disciplinary perspective of who's not in our classes, who should be. So from both of your experiences, are there other disciplines within the arts or other students who are not in your classroom who could really benefit from this type of education? So I think that maybe how I would frame that is kind of the uneasiness 
that we sometimes find between business and arts. Our colleague, Paul Bonin Rodriguez, has written about the identity question of you know, whether people in the arts are comfortable identifying as engaged in business or entrepreneurship. And there's a lot of judgment. I think some of it is extremely well-earned that art and business, business is sort of by analogy, like an encroaching older sibling who's like, here's how the world works. And you're like, well, actually, you know, it's more complicated. And I think when business first started to get taught in the arts, it had that air of here's a set of rules you can enact. And you know, this sort of pretending that it's an objective science when it's also normative. And what's been really interesting is to see that develop over time and to try, I don't know, I'd be curious how the two of you approach it, but to try to inculcate in students a sense of active engagement and agency around business where it's not a system being placed on you, but a set of tools that you can engage with. And so in that sense, I think some of the people who are not in the room as students are artists who are judging markets. And there's a lot to judge in markets, um, but I always want people to have the power to understand it well enough to say no to it or to rebuild it out of its own parts. And maybe that's assimilationist of me to say, but I feel like it's maybe pragmatic or realist that the world is organized as a market economy. So understanding it as a way of like holding, holding space for other, other values. So I think maybe there's some politics and critical thinking that could help that. Maybe that's another discipline I would throw in. Um, and then also throwing in more people who are in finance and economics to engage with creativity and art in a way that has um, a lot more texture and curiosity and nuance and that allows idiosyncrasy and people, not just data, to be present in the analysis. So um, there's two kind of extreme student cohorts that I'm starting to get more in my classes, but I want much more of them. And so on, on one hand are people who, you know, Amy, you sort of referred to. So we have a really strong social practice program at UNCG. We have a community arts was a program and, and now it's, you know, sort of more of a curriculum. I'm starting to get those people in, but there are these ideas, these sort of like business with a big B that's here to tell me what to do. And it's all about money. And that's not what I'm about. And then on the other hand, uh, bringing people in who are, say, uh, the major in economics or the, the business major, because a lot of the, what the work that I do in the classroom is, is team or cohort based. And there's a lot of feedback and there's a lot of working together and throwing ideas back and forth. And it's really, I think, helpful for those extremes, the kind of extreme perspectives to all be in the same room together because they all do help one another grow. Do you find, Jennifer, that they clash or that it's generative when you have these extremes on either side? So I taught at Moorhead State University in Eastern Kentucky for a long time. And I started um, first a minor in arts administration, then we pivoted it to a minor in arts entrepreneurship. And I had a young man in there who was a, he was either finance or economics as a major. And I remember the first time they really had to start to drill down and look at their business model. And like a lot of us, they use a business model canvas or another kind of canvas. And I remember that, I mean, he was just like, this is really hard. 
Like he was, I mean, he kind of came in a little, you know, <laughs> sure of himself at the beginning of the semester, but once he started to get into it and it was, it was about that ideation and recognizing opportunities and serving the end user and all that stuff. It, it really, it was very helpful for him as a moment of growth. Mm, definitely. And I think just not something that students are doing in other classes, uh, regardless of their major. I, I know that students in our department, in our arts management major will say like, oh, we're repeating assignments. We're doing things in different classes that are all the same. And I don't think that's true first off. And, <laughs> but I do think that arts entrepreneurship compared to let's say nonprofit management or organizational structure classes that are relevant to arts administrators, the entrepreneurship classes are a different way of thinking and something that is really important for our students to learn because they will likely be engaging with nonprofit and for-profit entrepreneurial ways of thinking and doing their work. I love that. And I think also when you engage with for-profit and nonprofit at the same time, or Jennifer, the student you're describing, you're up a level of abstraction. So you actually are bridging a liberal arts approach because you have to think more holistically about the values and the different definitions of value and how they come together in, in the design of an entrepreneurial structure or understanding, and you're a sociologist, Rachel, you can speak more precisely to this, but the kind of community of people and the dynamics within which people are making decisions. So I find that really exciting, what you're both saying. Yeah, I wonder if this is a good time to kind of talk about some of the, the differences in the types of things that are, are happening in our classrooms. And so the thing I'm thinking of is this idea of an entrepreneurial mindset versus these hard skills, that business model canvas, like Jennifer said, or like how to do taxes or monitor legal issues in the classroom. So I wonder, Amy, if you could talk about how you teach your students, maybe this kind of high level thinking of the entrepreneurial mindset versus some of the, the skill-based knowledge that they really need to, to do their work. Yeah, for sure. One of the things that's coming to mind when you're asking that question, Rachel, is the work that uh, William Jerezowitz has done. He has a recent book called The Death of the Artist on, on the difficulties structurally of being an artist in the age of big technology platform companies. But his prior book is called Excellent Sheep and it tracks back to these essays he wrote in the American Scholar on solitude and leadership and the disadvantages of an elite education. And he's talking about the necessity of solitude and being alone with your thoughts to leadership. And then also, his experience teaching you know, privileged Ivy League classes of students who could answer beautifully, balletically any question you put in front of them, but could not generate the question. And so I think that entrepreneurial mindset is question generating and leading from questions. This is a little bit what I wrote about in the book, Art Thinking, that design thinking, as incredible a tool it is, as much as I use it as a tool in teaching entrepreneurship, is defined somewhat in relation to the outcome, sort of like how might we do this thing that we need to deliver into the world. And I think art and the exciting part of teaching entrepreneurship in the arts is that you can start with a question that's messy and big, but that's the question you intend to ask and then try to navigate from the question in order to make progress and design short cycle experiments and modes of, of active learning to, to proceed. So I would say first and foremost, the entrepreneurial mindset is one of self-trust combined with acceptance of vulnerability because you're trying to figure out something you don't yet know how to do. And I think all of us would probably agree that arts entrepreneurship is harder 
than regular entrepreneurship because there's so many forms of value and there's so many structural economic challenges to arts entrepreneurship because it's so difficult to take an economic system that's designed to produce things efficiently or that's designed to invest in risk-taking, but to put that onto types of activity that are not efficient or that require serious research and development investment and that have extremely uncertain or risky outcomes. And so I think, yeah, first and foremost, it's just trying to get people to trust themselves with deep engagement, but also the sort of studio art ability to go all in to work on something and then let it go if you need to, to move on to something else. Jennifer, if you could maybe speak to how those, the issues of risk and values kind of play out in your classroom or in in the things that you hope to, to lead your students toward. Yes, this idea of getting them to understand that failure and to be comfortable with failure, failure where the risk has been thought through and understanding that you do need to understand yourself, understand the context that you're in and understand what might be desirable to the target market. To go back to sort of that, how do you bridge the sort of entrepreneurial mindset versus those management tools? My class design tends to look like an hourglass for the semester. So at the beginning part, they're doing that sort of like, who am I? What abilities, both technical, but also other abilities, the ability to communicate, the ability to have a a network, the ability to be able to use digital marketing, or the ability to get people together to be a project leader. So what are my abilities? What's the context that I want to be in or am currently in? And then who am I ultimately looking to engage with? And so then we, we kind of work through that. We incorporate market research. We do our draft or our business modeling. And then when we get to the midterm, that's when the hourglass goes in and that's they, they prototype. And like I said before, we work as a team and we give each other feedback and having those diverse perspectives in the room is extremely important. So we're all not just clapping for each other. And then once we get through that prototype moment, then we expand back out. And that's where that sort of small business management stuff lives. I mean, and that's when they have to build a web presence, you know, create financial projections, get a business card, create product or get their service. And then we end it um, with a proof of concept experience. So when I was in Kentucky, we actually did a big pop-up event. Now, when I taught this the first time at UNCG, and I know we'll talk about like what works and what doesn't, I had to teach it virtual. And I I also teach adult learners creative entrepreneurship, and I do a ton of virtual trainings. It could be a day, it could be like eight weeks. For me, it was really challenging, of course, with everything else going on too. This was last fall. It was really challenging for me to build that group dynamic and kind of that investment in the whole group that we're going to show up for each other and and, uh, kind of a healthy competition. And so that was missing when I taught it the last time. When I teach it again um, this spring, it will be, you know, knock on wood, in person, we can do a pop-up event. 
Um, but that's that's how I approach it. I just tell people it's like an hourglass. So then that proof of concept is the pop-up event, ideally, right? Yes. And it, it's going to look different for every every student who's involved. So it's very flexible. Not everybody is like selling something. Yeah, I was just going to ask Amy if you have a proof of concept that uh, assignment or project that that is similar or perhaps different from from the way that Jennifer does that at the end of her classes. Yeah, I love that. I'm sitting here taking notes. I really like the hourglass shape that really resonates. It has an undulating structure from really broad to kind of needing to reduce it um, to form. Uh, when I teach entrepreneurship now, it usually takes the form of a final presentation of a business plan. Um, and what I've been experimenting with the most is how to get students to iterate the business plan and so how to workshop it in the lead up to the final presentation. The assignment that has more playfully reduced something to practice, and I've mentioned this assignment to Rachel before when we were comparing teaching notes, is from a really lovely man named Hugh Music, who used to teach this idea of being a producer to design students, and it's called the cake assignment. And I actually don't teach it right now, but maybe I will sometime post-COVID. But the assignment is that you divide students up into teams and every team has to produce a cake and sell it. And they're only allowed to spend a dollar. They have to get an investor and they need to try to return 15% to their investor. So I used to teach this to product design students at the School of Visual Arts. And we would vary it. Sometimes people would bring in a recipe and it would be a recipe swap, or I didn't care if people wanted to make something healthier than cake or individually portioned. But one of the main takeaways was that success or failure had so much to do with small margins where they would make money back, but not all the money. They would learn a lot about the importance of their accounting choices. You know, if they had to buy a whole bag of flour, they only use part of it. My two favorite unexpected things that happened there was one year the assignment spanned a snowstorm in New York. And so the team wanted to raise money on Kickstarter, but it would take too long. They only had a week to do the project. And so instead of Kickstarter, they did cake starter and made like sandwich boards and went in the middle of like a quasi blizzard to Grand Central. And there's a guy on the team who's like a gifted calligrapher and he can write people's names and, and do caricatures. So they, they raise money selling those drawings in Grand Central and got kicked out in like 12 minutes and then went to the mid Manhattan mall and got kicked out in eight minutes, but they still made like $200. And they're like, our classmates are very cross with us that we made $200. And I was like, you might have to take everyone out for a drink, but I just really thought it was so creative, this kind of cross subsidy, right. Of making money from one artistic project to then fund another one actually seems very um, simpatico with artists. And then another team, they called a nearby after-school enrichment program and offered to teach a class to small children. And then the assignment they gave the children became the packaging for their cake. They ultimately came up a little short on making money back for their investor because the paper kind of bled into whatever health food bar. The lesson here is don't make a health food bar for the cake assignment. Um, but I was just like, I really have to laugh. Like as a teacher, I'm like, oh, child labor. <laughs> like, so dark, <laughs> and so inventive. But it was just a sort of nice like encapsulation as a practice round. And then I, I've also done a practice round at sort of teaching people to use Excel, which I maintain as one of the great inventions of the 20th century. I sometimes would try to assign students to take a business and um, in a detective mindset to create 
a working business model for it. It could be the entirety of a gallery. It could be a gallery going to an art fair, but to try to sketch out the financials based on whatever information they can glean. Sometimes they kind of hated the assignment and I learned to create like a ladder into it, you know, so like, here's a template, let's practice the template together. Okay, now you're going to do it with a sketching and numbers blank template of Excel. And, but I think that kind of thing is helpful also just for normalizing how much we're all guessing and then adjusting our assumptions all the time. Yeah. I think the idea that we're all adjusting assumptions and dealing with snowstorms and pandemics and uh, <laughs> realizing that your ink bleeds into your product. Like, I mean, this is, it's just how things are. And I think that's what's maybe special about these types of assignments, these proofs of concept, because you will run into so many problems and things. And I think as instructors on the other end of that, that means that we sometimes have to be really flexible and available for problem solving. I know I introduced my final assignment to students this week, which is you have to make $100. It has to be not related to a job you already have or hourly employment, but using creative skills, you must make $100 by the end of the semester. And there are a number of reflective writing prompts that go along with it. You have to do your business plan and um, marketing, market research, all of the things that we would expect. But immediately, you know, upon assigning it, you have students raising their hands and asking, what if I'd like to make money in a currency other than the US dollar? Do I have to make the equivalent rate of $100? What if that doesn't make sense for the economic situation of the country where I'd like to do this work? Which I had not thought of that. <laughs> this was not something that I had planned on the front end. So um, just immediately being thrown, not just the issues that come up for the students themselves, but then how as an instructor, you can translate that into something that the university sees as rigorous and upholding standards that are meant to be for that class. That's so interesting. And that really kind of resonates for me, kind of thinking through that problem. And it, it makes me think of a couple of moments teaching where I've also really been asked to think about how to level a socioeconomic playing field in the classroom, you know, where you'll be like, oh, I'm just doing this exercise where we create supply and demand and it's a winter coat market. But if someone draws the card with a small coat buying budget and that person had that situation growing up, then there's a complexity to it. I like the way you frame that, that they have to earn the hundred dollars and they can't just be like, well, I know someone of means and I you know, did five minutes of work for them and he gave you a hundred dollars. Like it's, it's interesting to kind of bring that stuff up in the classroom sort of transparently. Yeah. And I think the flexibility of the outcome, right. It's at least on the front end seems objective, right? Like it's just a number and we can all get to the number in different ways. Um, and I had students immediately brainstorm what are 10 ways that you could make this hundred dollars within the confines of the assignment. And as the students presented, day one also meant that they were iterating off of each other. So one said, I'm going to sell guitar licks. I'm going to play the guitar, play a melody, and people are going to pay me $1 per guitar lick, which is great. That's cool. But then other students immediately brought out the kind of modality of different platforms where they could do that. Will you do this live? Will you let people play your guitar? Will you sell this on Fiverr? Is this a TikTok situation? And I, I mean, I think as instructors, we can't plan that in. And that's, again, something that having students in community is something that perhaps is not typical in a classroom, but it is a really fabulous kind of outcome in, in this type of education. Jennifer, are there any kind of examples that stick out to you from your students as they worked toward their kind of cumulative project or proof of concept? 
right now we're about to kick off um, sort of the first sort of entrepreneurial mindset adventure in the arts administration class where they take a arts organization that they've learned about and a social sector nonprofit in the Guilford County or Greensboro area. And those two are collaborating and they have to create their own project. And we're about to get into it and the students have obviously anxiety about it. And so I stress that we are, we're learning together, that we come from different perspectives, different disciplines, and that's good. I'm very, very conscious with team building. They have to do pretty long intro survey for me that I look through and I look at that very carefully when I bring the teams together. I also talk to them about um, how you're going to come up with this idea and then you're going to share it with the whole group and this is your prototype moment. And then we talk about pivoting off of that. Like, doesn't mean when you get feedback that it's a bad idea, means that you might have to tweak it a little bit. And I compare the class a lot to a studio class. I'm like, we are, we are learning and we are doing, and then we're reflecting on that. And then we, we move forward with that information so that it's not a, here's the right answer, here's the wrong answer. And I do stress that I am about formative assessment. And that also everything that I do with them is grounded in professional practice. And I also do share with them that I've had like awesome ideas that I thought this is fantastic, either in uh, cultural nonprofit work or in my own artist entrepreneurship stuff. And then it fails, it totally fails. And how do you deal with that? How do you move forward from that? Because it will happen. It's not the end of the world. It's a learning opportunity. So those are just my kind of my thoughts about that. Absolutely. I think that failure is something that we're all quite familiar with. I think you can't put yourself out there on the market or otherwise without expecting to not always be successful. But I think that's really scary for students, especially when they're tied, you know, art is, is so personal in many ways. And so like Amy was saying, connecting that to the values of a marketplace, it's not well aligned in some way. And we have to communicate how, how to align oneself with the market in a way that still feels right. What you're saying really resonates and makes me think of Jennifer mentioning formative assessment, because I think we're so trained to say that's good, that's bad, as opposed to, you know, what's working and how can I make it better and adopting that Carol Dweck uh, growth mindset as opposed to kind of fixed mindset. And I think it's, it's really interesting pedagogically to shift from judging the success of the outcome to judging the rigor of the process. And I think that's maybe core, core to all the work. And, and also like one of the many problems of language when you put art and business together, because you're, you're trying to be descriptive and to pay not the currency of praise, but the currency of attention. And we're, you're just observing something as it is and then saying, you know, my concern is this or what I'm trying to figure out is that not that's bad, that'll never work, this'll work. And I think it's an interesting kind of shift just more generally. So something that I hear so many artists talk about in their careers, especially in their early career, is that it felt like a trial by fire. No matter what their preparation was, that 
they did so much on the job learning or use some other dramatic metaphor for how they learned the specifics of their actual career and the business of art. So what would you recommend that students do before graduation to avoid or lessen that feeling? Jennifer, would you like to start us off? An easy answer for me is obviously like take some classes in arts entrepreneurship, but also start putting yourself out there and start applying for exhibitions. Start seeing, you know, can you apply to say, be a work study at, you know, coming from the fine arts background, like Anderson Ranch or, or Aramont School of Arts and Crafts. Participate in sales, if, if that's what you want to do, if you want to be, you know, a fine craft or production artist, start to participate. So like, I used to work a lot with the Kentucky Arts Council and, and still do some, and they have a program called Kentucky Crafted that started in the 80s. They were one of the first arts councils to be very entrepreneurial and business oriented. And they started realizing several years ago that they needed to recruit emerging artists to recruit college students. So we actually have sent uh, groups of students to Kentucky Crafted and they've set, set that up. And it is challenging to put your work out there. And then also, you know, you're with these, you know, people who have been doing this for many, many years. And some had a great experience and then others, it was a little bit of a hard learning, but that was good because it's really in my mind, if you're an artist and you're putting yourself out there, when you start to deal with frustrations or roadblocks, you're basically building up, since I'm a textile artist, you're building up your calluses. So, I mean, I always joke, I don't need a thimble because I have strong calluses on my hand. And I think emotionally, I have a pretty strong callus when it comes to when I meet up with failure with my art ventures. Yeah, they just haven't had that much opportunity to fail yet. And when it comes down to it, that's the only thing, like you're saying, Jennifer, the only thing that can build up the callus is the experience itself. I mean, I would just say, do everything that Jennifer just said. That's such excellent advice. I think what I'm going to say is slightly conceptual, but I think number one, try to take art entrepreneurship classes or even politics of markets classes early enough to have time and space in conversation within an educational structure to develop your own politics of how art and markets intersect. I think it creates a degree of psychological safety. If you know that you're totally fine being represented by a massive gallery, or you know that that isn't for you and you'd rather make social practice art and there, therefore you'd like the freedom of having a day job and less time. So just sort of having some space to think about your relationship to time and money. And then I also feel that many problems and challenges that artists face are experienced individually and solved collectively, often through cooperative structures. So I think it can't be overstated the importance of being in communities of other artists and taking the vulnerability risk to be like, I feel lost. I have a feeling of shame about money. I don't know how to fix this because more often than not, the solution is not riddled by the individual person, but by a group of people. So I get really excited when I see artists look around and say, you know, what's stunning and amazing to me, whose work do I admire? And then they organize a show together in an empty storefront and 
raise money, like the hundred dollar away or however else to hire someone to write a curatorial essay. Um, and I think about that in, in economic terms, that's an economy of scope or a network externality, not an economy of scale kind of process. A lot of entrepreneurial or economic structures that are based around standardization of output, like I'm just gonna do this thing in bulk, are, don't really fit comfortably. They're very itchy for most of the values of art making, but economies of scope, we were like, here's a template, I can share it widely and people can easily adapt it, or there's something I could do myself, but it'll be much more uh, legible or amplified if I do it in a group of people. And actually it benefits everyone when I do that. All of those approaches really um, make sense to me, cooperative structures. And Amy, you have a fabulous article about that, don't you? Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's so funny. You should mention that, Rachel. I gave a paper on um, artist-led incubators a couple of summers ago, and the one question was like, you know, economies of scale are quite well studied in the arts, but economies of scope less so. And I was like, that is a Yoda moment where I need to take that and rearrange the paper <laughs> around that observation. So thank you, no offers. Uh, for that comment. I just have thought about it a lot. I think it's incredibly true that the economic advances we see in arts entrepreneurship right now, some of them are around economies of scope, like Generator in Milwaukee how and Springboard for the Arts in Minneapolis, how they kind of push systems out that are resource networked resource sharing or starting to see tools of finance like portfolio diversification and risk pooling be applied across artists. Like I see this in NFTs where an artist will sell an NFT artwork, but if they're selling it through, for example, Kalani Nicole has Transfer Gallery, where if each of us is an artist, if we sell a work, we get 70% of the proceeds and 30% is shared across all of us. So it takes something that's a really high risk outcome and creates this kind of cooperative social insurance among all of us. And I think those things are really powerful and we're going to see them develop more in the next five to 10 years. They sound science fiction-like right now because I'm going to say like, oh, well, artists are going to start DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations using blockchain-based smart contracts. And you're like, I don't know about that, Amy. And I, you know, I, I have that skepticism too, but I, I think those wrinkles will get ironed out and some of the edges will get kind of rounded and shaped and that we will see cooperative structures develop that allow resources to be shared and that from an equity standpoint, and I'm so curious, Rachel, more of the substance of the equity-based uh, entrepreneurship class you've been teaching. I think some of the equity issues can be addressed in that way because there are these kind of unequal starting points and then also amplifications of and of what in the arts is a form of wealth inequality or also just sort of huge success differential and superstar effects. So I think those structures are pretty interesting to help support artists in that way. But I'm, I'm also curious kind of what you're both observing. You bring up the, the equity focus of my class, but I have a, another little comment to slide in first, which is the cooperative structure. It's so interesting because in my research with songwriters, that's the way that songwriting works. You all share a copyright equally. Even if I only contributed one line to the song, like I share equally to the person who wrote all of the, the melody um, and 50% of the lyrics. And that is absolutely a risk reduction strategy economically, but also artistically. It allows people through this collaborative structure to take artistic risks in a way that if it were a, a singular person writing that they might not feel like they can take that risk. 
so I, I feel like I have to do some more thinking about uh, the intersections between between those things. But in terms of the equity focus arts entrepreneurship process, um, I think that one of the key foundations of it is that information has value and that people in their lived experience and their positionality come with information and knowledge that is specific to their community and can perhaps be useful in mobilizing their artistic endeavor. So we know that markets for different groups and communities are not necessarily well served by mass market products, including in the arts. We know that markets are inequitable and that because of that, certain groups are just literally not served by the market. So hopefully through this process, we'll see again, it's the first time I've taught it, teaching students that part of the entrepreneurial process is seeing one's own positionality and seeing one's communities of uh, membership, whether that be their hometown, whether it be their racial or ethnic group, whether it be uh, the major that they come from, that it puts them in a position to where they can identify opportunities, problems, and structures where they can intervene with their work. So again, we'll, we'll see how it goes, but I'm really excited to introduce that as part of the foundation of entrepreneurial thinking. So another kind of practical thing of this, this uh, teaching of collegiate arts entrepreneurship is the issue of when students should take these courses. Um, it seems like often this is thought of as an elective or something that's maybe special, whereas maybe, maybe I'm belying my own perspective, or maybe it's obvious that the three of us think it's important, but perhaps it should be taught earlier. So what are, what are your perspectives? When should people be taking these classes and what should universities do in terms of ordering it in the curricula? You know, it's funny. I actually was thinking about Jennifer describing her hourglass course structure where there's a reduction to practice in the middle and then an expansion. And I think by analogy, that's how I would structure it. So for example, fall of junior year in an undergraduate sense, or if you're in a two-year master's program, spring of the first year or fall of the second year, so you have some time before to gather a broad map or of the ecosystem you're working in and some time afterward to distill and continue to think about it. Um, I mentioned that before in terms of developing one's politics of art and markets, but also just so it sits in relationship to one's overall education. And so that, that would be my, my recommendation. So when I was at uh, Moorhead State University and really teaching the one discrete arts um, entrepreneurship class. I feel like in that class, it's a junior or maybe a first fall semester of a senior year. But I'm really happy that in our arts administration program, we have that 200 level arts administration and entrepreneurship course because it just kind of lights a fire um, and they, they just get super excited. And for the most part, after they get over the sort of understanding some of the concepts and the ways of working, they do see it as a, analogous to their creative practice. And then they can either just stop with that class and they have some skills now to, to take through the rest of college and then also their career, or they can move on to the next class and really kind of get much more deep into it. Yeah, I think it's great that you have the the two the two class series that they can take to really get into their own micro enterprise after that. Yeah, and I, I just was going to add, just listening to you, that 
uh, for people who are figuring out how to put entrepreneurship in the curriculum, another approach is to create an entrepreneurial assignment within a standard class. And I, I completely agree with, I'm convinced by what you're saying about the kind of ethos formation of taking entrepreneurship early, of kind of changing the lens by which people see the other information. We have a class in the two-year MA in visual arts administration where I teach called Visual Arts Markets. And it's a broad survey of the business structures in the arts, galleries, art fairs, auction houses. And the final assignment in that class is a business plan. And this past year, I was co-teaching the class with Elizabeth D who founded the, her, her own gallery by that name and then the independent art fair. And I was really interested and surprised by the variety of projects people came up with because the assignment was actually quite limited. They were supposed to come up with a gallery or an art fair structure essentially. And there's an enormous amount of variety and it was really heartening, I think, especially for people who are thinking about how to put entrepreneurship, not just in a studio art context, but in art historical context. It was really interesting, the importance of the program, the decisions about what kinds of art, what kinds of um, you know, time periods, level of stage of career, all those things were so important to the design of the business model itself. So I, I think that that could be a really positive experience. Even someone who's an art historian who's teaching a class or an exhibition design curatorial class, just even having someone think entrepreneurially about a proposal for an exhibition would be enough to to introduce it as a starting point and just as a, an experiment and seeing how entrepreneurship fits in the curriculum. That's great. Thinking about experimenting with our own curriculum, being entrepreneurial in the way that we design our own practice as, as instructors. You sound like an academic entrepreneur, Rachel. Yeah. Uh, I, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and to that point in my intro, so I also teach museum studies um, at UNCG. And in the intro to museum studies class, we are just about ready to start our entrepreneurial analysis of our university art museum, the Weatherspoon, which we, we had the executive director come, I guess it was yesterday and talk. And then we start working in class and we start doing a little bit of market research and doing a SWOT analysis and talking about end users and doing you know, avatar empathy exercises for those end users. And then they will eventually in the semester sort of take that knowledge and then use it to create exhibitions and associated like parallel programming from that. They really get into it. They like, they, they like having these ways of kind of looking at a nonprofit in a different way. I love that. And I just was going to yes and it <laughs> and and add that all organizations were entrepreneurial once and i've experimented with doing a founding story assignment where people come in and do many presentations on the founding moment of organizations we now take for granted and um, just to sort of roll them back and i also love doing this assignment early on called little big where you have to think of a small and a large organization that have the same business model and why it's different. So for example, Whole Foods grocery store and a fruit stand on the sidewalk in New York. And then you think about how their cost structure is different and the scale of operation. Just trying to trying to train people to observe diagnostically all the structures that surround them and taking things that are really formed, but rolling them back to before they existed just as a way of kind of training the mind. 
that's fabulous, Amy. I think that that big little assignment, now I, my wheels are turning on doing that. <laughs> and something that Jennifer said made me think of a, a big dream that I have for kind of pulling entrepreneurial education forward kind of to co-curricular education. Um, and that's the structure of legal clinics at law schools. So you have these places where students can solve real world problems that are brought to them um, within the kind of guidance and structure of, of the university. And it is my big dream that we have this for our arts students, because being able to, to take real world problems within our university communities and solve them uh, with entrepreneurial arts solutions, I don't know how to do that yet. So maybe maybe we can all figure this out. <laughs> but I think that, that pulling it forward into taking things like the, the museum example that you gave, Jennifer, and having students solve these problems or use that in their learning, I think is a, a great opportunity that maybe we can build a structure around one day. That sounds amazing. We'll see. TBD. <laughs> <laughs> so I see that there's sometimes a tension in colleges and universities when it comes to adding more to curriculum. So we have such a, a full structure already. We don't want students to have to pay more for their education um, or spend more time time to degree. These are all really important structures that are in place and perhaps constraining development of new courses or new programs within a department. So your example of adding in an entrepreneurial assignment to a non-entrepreneurship course perhaps is a great way to, to think about this. Um, but are there any, any kind of other ways that you would um, instruct others or suggest that they move forward with including arts entrepreneurship education if there's not room in their curriculum as it stands? Um, I think that's such an important question and I'll, I'll take it first because you're mentioning that um, assignment and I'm sure Jennifer is about to say something brilliant and I'm going to be like, oh, wait, that reminds me of this. But I was thinking as you're saying that one of my first jobs out of college was working in the education department at the Guggenheim Museum and the Guggenheim has this program called Learning Through Art where they organize teaching artists in the public schools. And this came about from a time in the seventies when you know, New York City was in serious financial crisis and philanthropists stepped in to try to have arts programming. And instead of having standalone arts classes, the philosophy of learning through art is curriculum integration. So the students make like circulatory city murals and George and Martha Washington healthy teeth masks and all, all manner of things that are actually on view in the Guggenheim or were at the time once a year. And I, I definitely take that tact that it actually can be really powerful just to have small entrepreneurial projects or to study existing things in entrepreneurial ways. Like for example, the canvases and careers, if I'm saying that correctly, the white and white book on the change from the French Academy to the dealer critic system actually has incredible information about the entrepreneurial lives of those artists. I pulled an income statement of Pizarro into my new economics book. John Michael Montias, who's Vermeer's definitive biographer, so much financial information in that book. Like Vermeer died with two or three years of debt to his baker for bread. I mean, he granted he had 11 children, but he also had some independent wealth. So you can kind of start to study things historically as a gateway into doing them entrepreneurially. And then I also think that it's reasonable to have co-curricular space for entrepreneurial activities. And NYU has a lot of entrepreneurship institute supports, and I think a lot of other universities do, but I think you know, faculty mentorship of a student club is a reasonable way of starting it. And then I think to your point about legal clinics, Rachel, 
the business school structures. Um, when I was in business school, at, um, this, I went to Yale, which has a background in nonprofit management like 20 years ago. And we had an organization called Outreach Management Consulting, where local organizations could apply for free support from teams of MBA students to solve, as you say, real, real world problems. And I think that that sort of outreach consulting in the community would be another, another way to do it and a sort of nice way of being focused externally. I really like what you're saying about sensitivity to tuition because that is a form of applying the values of entrepreneurship itself, that it's not a symbolic gesture of being entrepreneurial, it's a structural gesture. And um, so being able to do it within structures of problems of student debt and economic sustainability and access, I'm, I'm really glad that you raised that. At my previous institution and UNCG, there's, there's a, a couple of things. Um, first, you know, doing the entrepreneurship across the curriculum initiative at UNCG has been really great. Dr. Diane Welsh leads that initiative out of the Bryant School of Business. And we actually have a cohort of faculty that we meet up once a semester, you know, in the before times, we were all able to have lunch together, but that's been really great having this cohort of other faculty in a huge variety of disciplines, but who are incorporating entrepreneurship in their courses. I did have to go through the sort of difficult curricular refiguration when my dean in Kentucky asked me to pivot from arts administration to arts entrepreneurship. Not only was it really looking at what that minor was and what we could pull out and so we could put in arts entrepreneurship because at first I was told, oh, you don't have to have a dedicated arts entrepreneurship class in your arts entrepreneurship minor. And I said, well, no. I also got a little bit of pushback from that college of business because suddenly when we went from administration to entrepreneurship, then that became a problem. It all worked out, but it didn't need to be nearly as difficult as it was. And lastly, you know, if there is truly sort of no wiggle room, I would suggest, and this is what I wish, you know, I went to Columbus College of Art Design. So Rachel, I'm very familiar with Columbus, Ohio. While it was a fairly commercially oriented school, they did not have, and now they do, they did not have at that time entrepreneurship or individual business, arts business development uh, baked in. And I wish that it had been part of my capstone class, even if I had just a little bit of experience so that I understood how to do sort of cost of goods sold and to understand, you know, what is truly my market fit? You know, if I'm making this kind of work about this, here's where I want to be targeting a gallery, maybe not so much this type of a gallery, just these basic concepts uh, were, were not really covered with my BFA in studio art. And then also at the campus of UNCG, we are in the very, very, very beginning stages of the formation of a arts entity that will have an incubation aspect to it and be very community facing. And I am very hopeful that entrepreneurship will be a part of the sort of value that that entity brings both to the campus and to the community. 
All of those sound really great. I, I feel like I need to come visit both of your campuses when it's safe to come learn from you and, and see all of these things in action. Is there anything we've missed, anything else that we need to, to share with the CAA audience that's relevant to this topic? I have one bigger conceptual note and then also just wanted to think about resource sharing, uh, listening to what Jennifer was just saying. The biggest thing I've thought about over the course of teaching entrepreneurship to artists is the importance of language and the difficulty of language. And I just want to acknowledge it, that it's difficult to use the language of markets without it sounding like you have capitalistic intent. And it's also difficult to avoid the language of markets. I wrote an economics book and someone who I really respect was like, Amy, don't say markets, say communities of support. And I was like, I can't, I can't do that. Like, I just, I mean, I want people to have communities of support. That's why I want them to engage with what a market is. But so I just want to acknowledge that challenge almost as a plea for patience. And I think in the COVID era, that larger theme of what it is to extend grace to other people and to ourselves, just language is a part of that. And then I just was thinking about some resources just to mention, and we can add links to the podcast if you want. And then I'm thinking about Artists Thrive and the work Jennifer's doing. So maybe I can volley it to you to say more about that. Um, but the things that come to mind for me are not just the business resources for artists, but some of the conversations around that. Sharon Loudon has done amazing work interviewing artists for her books, like Living and Sustaining a Creative Life. And I would check those out as a way of just kind of being in conversation with people. Heather Bandari co-wrote a book called Art Work, Art Slash Work. And that's also a great professional practice book for artists. She, with Dexter Wimberly, started something called Art World Conference that has an offshoot called Art World Learning, where they have a series of videos on professional practice. I'm not trying to self-promote. I did uh, one of the intro videos to that on how to think about economics as an artist. And then if it's ever interesting to anyone listening to this, I made a curriculum, one with the new museum incubator, which they've further developed and one with the lower Manhattan cultural council. That's technically for choreographers and movement artists, but it's all the same structural stuff and it's under creative commons license. It was co-developed by LMCC and the Actors Fund. And anyone's welcome to email me and I will happily send you links to five days of workshop content and also a workbook. And it's all the kind of basic structural stuff of how economics is a building block for entrepreneurial models. And if it's ever helpful to anyone to use it, like, please, please have it. And then maybe I can just throw it over to you, Jennifer, on the Artist Thrive Tremaine work, which I also really respect. Okay, well, the, the first thing that I want to say before I forget it is that I have like a page and a half document that I share with the adult learners who take my workshops that is broken down into books about entrepreneurial mindsets, one of which is your one of your books, Amy, um, <laughs> and the marketing, research, you know, financials. And I will send that to Rachel and then she can add that um, as something that people can grab. Yes, Artists Thrive is an initiative from the Tremaine Foundation. Uh, Tremaine Foundation has done a lot of work in artist support, uh, professional development, and also support for curators. And they developed a rubric and it is a work in progress. They developed a sort of self-assessment rubric, both for working artists, but organizations that work with artists 
to sort of gauge where you are. And I will say I took it from the perspective of a working artist and it was a little depressing at first because I realized like I was not being intentional about managing my time. So I actually have studio time. I would just react like a squirrel to any like external stimuli. But it did help me sort of go, oh, okay, well, here's what I'm missing. And here's where I would like to be. Uh, here's where I can be thriving. What kind of steps? And so with my work with the Tremaine Foundation, when I use Artists Thrive, I have the artists take the assessment. I'll actually be doing a three month long artist entrepreneurship training with Arts Greensboro, which is our local arts agency there. And we're going to be using Artists Thrive and using it as a sort of wayfinding exercise. So just a final thing that I wanted to say is, and this happens with college students, and it also happens with adult learners, that when you have an arts entrepreneurship class, you are going to get people on a long continuum of readiness and, and, and willingness and interest. And you're gonna have people who are really highly entrepreneurial and are really about pivoting to the end user. And then you're gonna have somebody, and I'll quote someone who was in a workshop of mine somewhere a couple weeks ago. Yeah, I don't really like to think about those sorts of things. <laughs> and anywhere in between, I mean, I first noticed this when uh, many years ago I was teaching, being asked to teach like digital marketing for artists. Well, you'd have people who were super savvy in there. You'd have people who are like, yeah, I just got an iPhone and social media is the devil. And I've noticed that same thing is happening in the, in the classes and the cohort. So you need to be flexible and understand. And then also it's a real great opportunity to do peer mentoring and to, to really kind of create very dynamic, like small groups or, or pairing off. But I just wanted to share that with, with everybody because that took me by surprise at first. These are all fabulous resources. I'm so glad to have gotten to learn from both of you today. I, like I said, selfishly wanted to bring us all in conversation so that I could learn from you. But I also hope that everyone listening has enjoyed this and I hope that it really uh, spurs some more thinking forward on how we can engage with arts entrepreneurship education in our classrooms and potentially outside of the classroom too. So thank you all for listening.